Last week we saw that Jesus was ministering in the in the synagogue at Capernaum and he cast a demon out of a man. What we're going to read now happened on the same day, verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. I'm going to begin this with an illustration that involves a train pulling cars. But before I put the train on the tracks, I want to lay down the tracks. And the tracks that I'm going to lay down are the essential elements of the gospel. Just two tracks. So one track is the love of God, and the other track is the justice of God. So both of these are essential to the gospel. Uh, I think that sometimes people overemphasize the love of God, and other times people overemphasize the justice of God. When the love of God is uh, emphasized at the expense of the justice of God, then people have a tendency to, uh, to think lightly of sin, supposing that God is nothing more than an exalted Santa Claus. And when the justice of God is emphasized and neglects the love of God, then people have uh, an undue terror of God and don't recognize that, uh, well, that he is a God who shows mercy. And it, I think that recognizing both of these things is, uh, both of these are essential components to the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, it was a great manifestation of the love of God. It showed that he was willing to forgive sinners even at great cost to himself. But you'll never really understand what happened to the cross unless you also understand the justice of God. Jesus uh, was dying. Uh, Jesus was dying on the cross and did die on the cross because God, in his justice, must forgive sinners in a way that is consistent with his holiness and justice. God never just pretends like someone never sinned. Every sin is an offense against God's character because God's law is a manifestation of his character. Uh, The fact that lying is a sin is not just because God thought up one day, let's make up some rules. No, lying is a sin because God is a God of truth. 
Uh, Adultery is a sin, not because God just thought, I'm going to make up this rule, but because God is a God of purity. And so all the laws that God has given are a reflection of his character. And therefore, every sin, no matter how small, is an affront. It is an attack against God's character. And uh, if God were to forgive sinners without sin being paid for, then he would be compromising his character and he would, in a way, be lying. He would be lying and saying, it doesn't matter that you have broken my law. I can just pretend like you did not break my law. But God does not just pretend like you did not break his law when he forgives your sin. He forgives our sin because his justice has been satisfied in the sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross. The the combination of these two ideas, the love of God with the satisfied justice of God, is the gospel. It is... It is the message, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven unless you understand these basic elements of the gospel. You, will, you must receive Christ as the way that your sins are forgiven, but also as the way that you bring honor to God through receiving his appointed means of reconciliation. You can be right with God, but it's only through Jesus Christ. Sometimes I'm around uh, people who use acronyms. Uh, a lot of people in the military use a lot of acronyms. They talk talk about a certain place, and they just use they just use the initials of that place. And someone was telling me today, you need to that he received news that he had to go to his <clears throat> PCP. He didn't know what a PCP was. I wouldn't either. But your primary care provider, so he acquires this your primary care provider. And there are all these little initials that sometimes we use when we are initiated into a particular way of thinking or a particular vocation, and it's okay. But I think sometimes we use the gospel that way, that we talk about the gospel this and the gospel that, and uh, the gospel needs to be primary. And I'm going to say that today, but I thought at the outset it's important that everyone in here understands that the gospel is represented by these two train tracks, God's love and God's justice. And God's love is never expressed at the expense of his justice. And God's justice is expressed in a manner that is, in, that is consistent with his love. And just like two train tracks go on and on, and it may look like they meet down on the horizon, but they never really crisscross each other, so these attributes of God <clears throat> never contradict or fight against one another, but they live in perfect harmony. And now I'm going to say that the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, this church and other local churches, are like a locomotive that is set on those train tracks. And uh, these, these train tracks are a means of facilitating travel for train. It may look like train, that train tracks actually restrict a train, but if you take a locomotive and set it off the train tracks, it won't go very far. 
It may go some distance if the ground is hard enough, but it only works best. A train only works best when it's running on the rails that have been set up for it. But behind the locomotive, there may be other cars. There may be cars of uh, social concern, such as behind the locomotive may be a car that says, we need to feed hungry people. A ministry like Five Loaves feeding people in Ethiopia. And then behind that may be another car that says, we need to comfort, we need to comfort grieving people. And so there on the tracks at Bullet Lick, we've got the ministry of grief share that comforts grieving people. And then we say, well, we need, we need to make people feel welcome and provide a meal for people after funeral services and just generally get together and celebrate. And so behind that is a, a car that is uh, the fellowship ministry. We need to make people feel welcome when they come. And so there's the car of the welcoming ministry and, and so on down the line. There's the, there's the youth ministry. There's the children's ministry that is going. Here's, here's the choir and the music ministry. And there are all these, all these various cars that are being pulled along by the church, but they only work well when they stay on the gospel track. And that is the primary lesson that I think that the, the juxtaposition or the bringing together of these two incidents from the life of Christ teaches us, that Jesus has, has spent the day performing miracles. He casts, out the, he casts out a demon. Then he goes to Peter's, Peter's house, and his mother-in-law is there, and she's sick with a fever. And he, he takes her by the hand, and he raises her up. The message about this, uh, what happened to the synagogue and what happened to Peter's mother-in-law spreads throughout the community. And so it was a Sabbath day, and probably out of respect for the Sabbath, as the sun was going down, which was the close of the Sabbath day in the Jewish, in the Jewish calendar, at the close of the Sabbath day, here come all of these, all of these people who are sick. And uh, I, I wish that we could just imagine that scene. The sun is setting. It's getting dark. And then around Peter's house, there come all of these people. Some of them are on crutches. Some of them are just, they have terrible limps. There are some people who are being led along because they are blind. There are other people who are acting agitated because they are being tormented by evil spirits. And uh, when a crowd like that gathers, then there are plenty of curious onlookers that come also. And I can just imagine that in this relatively small town of Capernaum, Almost the whole town is gathered there outside of Peter's house. And, uh, and then Jesus, I don't know how he's doing it. I don't know if he's just speaking words or if he's touching people like he touched Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know how he's doing it. I often think with great, with great bewilderment on how Jesus healed people. I think about it almost every day. How did he do it? And a lot of times there are times when I think, if I could just figure out the secret, maybe I could do it too. If there was a certain, if there was a certain thing that he knew about deafness and he addressed that in just a way, uh, or if there's a certain, what was the formula that he used? I don't know. 
And, uh, and of course, you probably also have sometimes wished that uh, you knew how to heal people. Uh, part of the reason of my prayer, praying uh, the pastoral prayer, was to make us content to live in the day that we live. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But I, right now, I just want you to see that scene and just how, how earthy it is. All these people and the, the smells and the sounds, sounds of, of jubilation as someone is released from some sickness that has bothered them. They thought they were going to die this way. Maybe they thought they were going to die from the condition. And then they feel that they are well. And, and the shouts of jubilation and the, the shouts of wonder as they see people who were crippled get straightened out and start walking and leaping and praising God. And then other people say, help me next, help me next. And Jesus just healing them and taking care of them. And then uh, perhaps when every last person had been healed, or maybe when it got so dark, I don't know, but it came time to go to bed. And probably Jesus went to sleep in Simon's house. And then Jesus got up very early in the morning. Well, as soon as it was light, then people began coming back to Peter's house, bringing their sick, bringing their demon-possessed, bringing their epileptics, bringing their paralyzed. And, of course, they wanted uh, Jesus to heal them. You and I would have done the same thing if we were there with our sickness or with our sick loved ones. And they again say, where is Jesus? And they look around in the place where Jesus was sleeping, and he wasn't there. And so Peter and his companions went looking for Jesus. It was not readily apparent to them where he was because they searched for him diligently. And then they find him in a solitary place where he's praying. And uh, they say, Lord, everyone's looking for you. I can imagine that... uh, the disciples, Peter speaking for them, kind of had the idea, we're really on to something here. I mean, I know that you've done some miracles in the past, but this healing thing is going to be our ticket to the future. I mean, you're going to ride this wave to the Messiahship for sure. So come on, let's go heal some more people. And Jesus says, let's go to the other towns. I must preach there also. Because that is why I was sent. And so then they went on and he healed other people. But his primary mission was that of preaching and of praying. And it's the main thesis of this sermon that the business of preaching and praying ought to be the main business of every local church, this local church. That it ought to be the focus of the kingdom of God in general. And that some variety of this ought to help you and me as we seek to understand how we ought to live our lives and how how we ought to live our days. I recognize that uh, none of the women in here are called the pastor. None of the women in here are called to preach because the Bible forbids it. Well, what are you called to do? What are you supposed to be doing? Are you doing it? Jesus had a sense of what his primary purpose was, and there were good things that could have been a distraction to him, and he was able to recognize. The big danger that most of us face is that we will be content with exchanging bad for good. That's a good start. 
But we need to go on to exchange good for better. And that's even further along the right path. But we ought ultimately to exchange what is better for what is best. And I hope that one of the purposes, one of the functions of this sermon will be to help you to think earnestly about what's the main thing that I'm supposed to be doing? Then, Lord, help me to make sure that I am daily seeking to fulfill and enhance this one thing. Help me to recognize what is a distraction. Not everything in your life is a necessary thing. Ask yourself, is this one of the necessary things? Is this thing that I'm doing keeping me from practicing the necessary thing? Because you know the thing that you do crowds out the thing that you might have done, for better or for worse. The thing that occupies your time takes up a, a, a period of time that you might have been doing something else, and it might have been something better. Well, before I, that, that is a preview of, the, of my conclusion, my concluding admonitions. But before we get there, let's first of all ask the very good question, what was the purpose of the miracles? And I think that uh, we can find two or three or four purposes of the miracles. And the first very obvious purpose of the miracles was to relieve suffering. So... If you don't think that's a very important thing, then you're probably not suffering right now uh, or haven't suffered much. But that, uh, that is, a, is an important aspect of the healing ministry of Jesus. He was revealing suffering, but I, I put it first, although I think it is probably the least important of the things that I'm going to say. It was to relieve suffering. Secondly, I think that uh, the miracles that Jesus performed, miracles of healing and casting out demons and so on, were miracles that revealed his character. And revealing his character was revealing the character of God. I think that uh, most people throughout history would uh, consider the prospect of God coming to visit them with some fear and trepidation and even terror. Because we're all conscious of the sinfulness. We're all conscious conscious of uh, the reasons that God has to be angry with us And if God were just going to say, I'm going to come down to your village and I'm going to visit you, there would probably be a considerable amount of fear, as there should be. But when Jesus came down, when God came down to earth, then he never came wielding thunderbolts of judgment. He never came throwing lightning bolts of disapproval. Instead, he went about doing good. His, his primary mission uh, when he was here was not to bring judgment, but to bring healing and to bring reconciliation. And it's inevitable in the preaching of the gospel that there's going to be division. And so Jesus says, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? I tell you no, but I came to bring division. I'm going to make an, a significant difference between the people of the earth so that Even people who are in the same family are going to be divided into followers of Jesus and people who are not followers of Jesus. And so even in his his acts of mercy and revealing that God is a gracious God, there still is some inevitable division that takes place. 
But one of the primary purposes of the miracles was to show that God is a God who cares. God is a God who, who is able to feel with us. God is a God who listens and who, even today, is in the work of healing and relieving people's problems. It's a remarkable thing about the, the, the gospel. When it is properly understood, it's like that train that I mentioned. It brings other good cars behind it so that wherever the true gospel of Jesus Christ goes... It usually is not long until education in that area is established or is improved. It's rational because uh, we are being guided by a book and we want other people to be guided by the book and so we teach them how to read. Uh, when, When Sabra and her family, the Housleys, went to the place where her mom and dad still, still minister... They had no written language, and so their, uh, the Housleys developed an alphabet, taught them how to read, translated the scriptures so that now the educational level there is just night and day uh, compare, contrasted with what it was 25 years ago. They've been there for 20 years, and what a difference. And uh, wherever the gospel of Christ goes, not only does education follow, but uh, soon there are hospitals, there are improved uh, health conditions that follow. Uh, uh, The the ministry of five loaves not only feeds the children, but uh, Scott was telling me on Wednesday night they they have terrible tooth decay and that they're teaching them how to brush their teeth. Well, it's not the main reason that they went to Ethiopia to teach people how to brush their teeth. The main reason they went to Ethiopia was to get the gospel to these children and to, their, to that community and to those families. But along the way, they're learning how to brush their teeth. I consulted with a couple of people in, my co- in our congregation who are uh, leaders in their field, uh, Eric Elwell in the field of technology, and I, I asked him, uh, called him yesterday, and I said, Eric, are you, are you aware of any great technologies that are coming out of uh, countries that are dominated by, by religions other than Christianity? I mean, for example, I, I said, is, uh, do Islamic countries produce anything that the rest of the world wants to buy? I came up with uh, Persian rugs, meerschaum pipes, and petroleum. And, uh, but in our brief conversation, which probably never lasted more than 10 minutes, then uh, Eric couldn't think of anything that was really being produced in Islamic countries that the rest of the world wants to buy. And then I consulted with uh, Smith Bullock, who is uh, a, a leader in the field of uh, cardi- cardi- pediatric cardiology, and I said, are there any, are there any uh, medical advances that are being pumped out by Hindu countries or by Islamic countries? And uh, she thought about it and got back with me today and said, I'm not aware of any. 
Now, of course, that's an informal survey, and maybe you can think of something. It's, not, it's still not going to ruin the point that I'm making, that there is something about Christianity that makes the rest of the world better when it comes. And then I want to make this clarification. It's not just Christianity in general, because I think that countries that have been under the influence of Roman Catholicism for many years are also backward compared to countries that have been under the influence of Protestant Christianity. And so countries that have been under the influence of Protestant Christianity are usually the places that are producing the technology uh, or they're producing the automobiles that the rest of the world wants to buy. And so I th- what are, what are the, the, the philosophical underpinnings that makes the church such a train as that? And one of the things is that God is not mad at you all the time when you're his child. Another thing that is uh, enmeshed with a proper understanding of the gospel is that in order to please God, you mustn't think that just one hour at the temple is going to take care of it. You mustn't think that just one hour at the church is going to take care of it. One of the things that that Christianity teaches us, the, the Christianity of the Bible, call it Pris- Protestant Christianity if you will, is that, there, that all of life is sacred. And so all of life is to be lived for the glory of God. As I said, not all of you are going to be preachers. Some of you are mothers and that's your main job. But there's a way that you're to be a mother to the glory of God. Some of you are mechanics. Some of you are electricians. Some of you are involved in others of the trades, and some of you are involved in technology and medicine and education and so on. I'm not saying that all of you need to become preachers, but all of you do need to do what God has called you to do in a way that brings glory to God. And that's one of the things that true biblical Christianity teaches us, is that all of life is sacred to God. So it's it's not just on Sunday morning, or it's not just that hour at the temple, and then you go on and you do whatever you want. No, God cares about the way that you spend your money. And so when you realize that your money belongs to God, then you stop wasting it on frivolities. And then you start accumulating some capital, maybe. And then you think, what am I going to do with this? Well, I'm I'm going to be able to support the, the work of the gospel, but also, I've got enough money left over here that I can make some investments. Maybe I can get a little business started. I'm not wasting all this money on alcohol and drugs anymore. What am I going to do with all this money? And so often, when, when the gospel comes and transforms a community, then that community also prospers economically. But economic prosperity is not the main thrust of the gospel. Spiritual salvation, spiritual prosperity is the main thrust of the gospel. So that's one of the things that makes it so desperately confusing for most of the world, the the health and wealth gospel. Uh, That's one of the things that is corrupting the proclamation of Christianity throughout the world is that these health and wealth people are saying that your physical financial prosperity is the main goal of the gospel. And that's not true. And, what, and the juxtaposition, the joining together of these two passages of Scripture teaches us, that, teaches us that. 
One time, uh, the members of the body got together and they were complaining about the heart. They were distressed that the heart was constantly saying pump, pump. I mean, just day and night, the heart was saying pump, pump. And so the feet said, you know, I get, I get tired of hearing the heart day and night saying pump, pump. Sometimes he wakes me up at night saying pump, pump. I mean, I'm not, <clears throat> I don't think I'm getting the due that I should get. I'm the feet. I take the body, wherever it wants to go, and the hands say, I know exactly what you're saying. I get so sick of his pomposity, just pump, pump, day and night, pump, pump. I am the hands. I'm the one who does the work. I know your feet, you take us there, but I'm the one who does the work. And, uh, and the, the eye said, tell me about it. I am, I'm the one who sees the way to go. And then just all the time, the, the, the heart, pump, pump, like he is so big. And the brain says, I know it. I'm the one who does the thinking and the reasoning. I never get all the credit that I should. Sometimes I want to sleep at night and then all the while, pump, 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 pump. And so they all decided they were going to cut off the blood flow to the heart. And when they did, then the mouth said, well, I'm glad that that is finally quiet, so now I can... And he was going to say, say whatever I want to, but he couldn't say anything. And the feet said, well, I'm glad that's over with, so now I can take the body wherever. And then he had to be quiet because he couldn't move. And the same thing with the hands and the brain. It all stopped when the heart stopped saying, pump, pump. Now, there's another version of that story that they went on living, but they became zombies. And I'm not exactly sure about the whole zombie story, but I think it's something like the living dead. And I think that's what all of the social programs that are distractions from Christianity become when they are uncoupled from the locomotive of the gospel. When they say concerning the gospel, pump, pump, I know you, you, you fundamentalists, you Bible thumpers, you're always pray and preach, pray and preach. Oh, shut up. But when feeding the hungry gets separated from pray and preach, it becomes a zombie. When economic prosperity gets separated from pray and preach, then it just becomes a zombie. Well, I've been saying what are some of the primary purposes of the miracles, and one is that they relieve suffering. A second is that they reveal the character of God. And then this third very important reason is one that we saw when I read from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. They, they confirm the reliability of the message that Jesus was preaching. So the miracles confirmed, authorized, corroborated the authenticity of the message that Jesus was bringing. There are three great, three great periods of miracles in the Bible. Uh, one, during the time of Moses. A second, during the time of Elijah and Elisha. 
and the third during the time of Christ and the apostles. What do those three epics hold in common? They're all three periods where new revelation was coming from heaven. Moses, Elijah and Elisha with the prophets, and then Jesus and his apostles with the proclamation of the gospel. And in all three of those instances, the the people who were proclaiming the new message were able to say, this comes from God. And the people might say, how do we know that it comes from God? And then the preacher says, well, there's this. And Moses parts the Red Sea. And then there's this. And he hits the rock and a river of water comes out. And then, you know, there's this, says Elijah. And fire falls down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And then there's this, says Jesus, touching the eyes of a blind man, calling Lazarus out from the tomb. So these were all, these miracles, the primary purpose of them was to confirm the reliability of the gospel. But the main thing is the praying and the preaching. Now, this, is, uh, th- this ought to be the main thing for all the, all the people of God. But we can't examine all the people of God. But we can look at Bullet Lick Baptist Church and say, is the praying and the preaching the main thing? Is the praying and the preaching, is, is the gospel the thing that is dragging along all the ministries at Bullet Lick Baptist Church? And uh, I want to encourage you and say, I think so. Let's just start with me. So you pay me. You pay me enough that I don't have to go get another job to meet my financial needs. I'm grateful for that. But that also says something about you. That says that you want preaching and teaching. You want good preaching and teaching. And you are willing to pay a preacher to preach and teach. And so let's just start there. My family and I say thank you, but also as your pastor, I'm saying good job. And then I look at, I look at the other ministries. And, you know, when, when Ruth Ann or Scott tells us about five loaves, It's never just about feeding the children and teaching them how to brush their teeth. It's also about we are teaching them the Bible. We are sharing the gospel with them. I usually go to Grief Share only one night out of each semester. But on that one night, Dodd shares the gospel. And I know that he's sharing the gospel on every other night. I know that... Tanya and the other members of the the grief share team. We want to assuage the grief that people are experiencing, but the main thing is we want them to know Jesus. I think about the the various ministries. What what a great job Emily does with the children's ministry and coordinating the nursery. But it's not just about keeping the kids entertained. Look at what they're learning. It's about teaching them about Jesus. the, the main thrust of our youth ministry and Max and the great job that he is doing 
is not just to give them some place to go bowling or some place to have a weenie roast. It's, uh, it's about teaching them about the gospel and teaching them about Jesus. The thrust of the music ministry is not we're, we're going to just get the, the latest songs that are most fun to sing. We're going to assemble a rock and roll band here and rock the place out and, and bring in smoke and all that kind of business. No, the thrust of the music ministry is we want to, we want to glorify Christ. And so I say, good job, Bullet Lick. Keep on track. I know that when I was playing basketball, uh, if the coach said to me, good hustle, that made me break my neck to get him to say it again. And so if I'm your coach, I'm saying to you, good hustle. Keep up the good work. I think you're doing it right. But now let's come down from the church to your life. Jesus had a clear sense of what he was supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be praying and preaching. And so I'm going to heal people along the way, but that's, that's not in first place. First place is praying and preaching. Now, I would say that for most of you in here, that's not your primary responsibility. Your primary responsibility is not praying and preaching. But what is it? What's edging that out? What is competing with? In, in light of preaching this sermon, I, I've done some soul searching. There's a ministry that I think I was neglecting, that I, I think I need to be doing that. It's one of the main things that the Lord has gifted me to do, do that. You know, I'm trying to think about how can I better equip the church to keep doing what we're doing. And so we're revising the internship ministry to be more focused on preparing pastors for leadership in this church and for leadership in other churches. And, uh, you know, so examine your life. What are you supposed to be doing? How can you do that to advance the kingdom of God? There's almost certainly a way that you can. And it doesn't mean that you have to to witness to every single person that you come in contact with. Do if you can. But start with simple things like doing a conscientious job, doing a good job, the job that you're paid to do. Uh, being, Being the kind of person so that when someone feels the conviction of the Holy Spirit about their sin, they think, now who do I know that goes to church? Ah, I know him. Ah, I know her. And then they come and they say, can you, can you tell me about, I mean, what do I need to do to know God? Live your life in such a way that someone thinks of you that way. And make sure that the things that ought to be in second place and in third place are kept in second and third place. Now, there's a danger in a sermon like this. This is now the third time that I'm going to mention the task of mothers. So being a mother is often a a thankless task. It certainly is not glamorous at all. But is it the task that God has given to you? Then do it well. Rear those children for the glory of God. And then I could look around the congregation and look at the various vocations that are represented here and say, you be an electrician for God. There's a way that you can do it. 
If you're going to move furniture, you move furniture for God. If you're going to be a forester, be a forester for God. If you're going to be a consultant, be a consultant for God. And uh, I think that's the big lesson that we need to take away from this. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life on bad things. Don't waste your life on good things if you could do better things. And don't waste your life on better things if you can be doing the best thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will fall into place. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we need you to give us your Holy Spirit so that we will be able to honestly examine our lives and uh, make the, the changes that need to be made. Starting with the biggest of all changes that we would turn from wasting our lives following after sin and Satan and turn our faces to following after Jesus. Please help people to make that about face, even today. And then some of us have made the big change, and we're following Jesus, but just distracted with this and that. Help us to have a a clear idea of what we ought to be doing, and to pursue it faithfully. We so need the spiritual saturation that comes from living in a community of prayer and praise and preaching. We pray that you will make this that kind of community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.